OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 70. My name is Naman Jok Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Rhea Crichton, who talks about her experience of cancer and her incredible career. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Dr. Alex King, who will be discussing his role as a consultant psychologist in the NHS. Hi Alex. Hello there. Lovely to be with you. So could you tell us a bit about your current role, Alex, and how you got there? Uh, of course. Well, uh, you know, hearing that we're number 70 it sort of makes me think about how I'm going to get out of here. Um, so that's a kind of good number for retirement. Um, uh, so, um, you know, let me cast my mind back to uh, sort of how I got here. Um, so psychologists, um, yeah, you know, they'll start from a sort of first degree in psychology is nobody's surprised to hear. Um, and psychology is one of the most popular undergraduate topics in the UK. I think if not the top one, it's uh, massive. Uh, so, um, you know, after that, you start to kind of look around and see what, what could I do with it. And I did really didn't have any sort of very strong ideas at that point. I thought, you know, it'd be um, potentially uh, going in an academic direction and sort of um, sat and uh, listened in on some uh, uh, courses in neuroscience. Um, it sounded very exciting at the time. It was the late 90s, cognitive neuroscience, AI. Um, and then I realized it was just really not what my mind was good at because it needs um, really quite a lab-like attitude and sort of precision. And what you do is reaction time experiments and sort of very, very esoteric things. Um, and I kind of hankered after the, the the sort of more dramatic, bigger issues. And we had a professor, Janet Sayers, uh, really, uh, really thoughtful, really sort of wonderful uh, psychoanalyst, uh, feminist psychoanalyst, and uh, she was incredibly inspiring. So I thought, right, I'll do that. You know, that's very inspiring. 
Um, so if I went to do my master's uh, at the Anna Freud Center in UCL in London, uh, learned a lot, an awful lot from wonderful people uh, about uh, child development, attachment, early development, um, worked on some, uh, some research, stayed on and worked on some research there on attachment and um, youth uh, uh, who uh, were kind of caught up in trouble. Uh, and what were the early sort of developmental um, antecedents there. Um, I was able to uh, see what the approach was from people like Peter Fonagy, who's now um, leading nationally on children's mental health um, uh, and was a, Lee, uh, was a clinical director at the UCL course. So I sort of really wanted to go towards that. So went off and did some clinical uh, assistant work uh, and uh, started and was very, um, very, very pleased when my um, acceptance to the UCL doctorate clinical course came through. Um, I reread the letter, ticked off every point just to make sure, you know, I, I think I still have that letter. Um, it's a big deal. It, it was a big deal. It, it was a big deal. It's pretty chuffed. Um, so uh, London, uh, back to London for three years, um, clinical psychology training. Uh, you, you do various, you rotate to various kind of clinical specialties. Um, I did about a year in pediatrics. At, uh, I realized that's not for me. I really don't uh, really have no kind of sense of confidence in telling parents what to do. Um, and uh uh, but but sort of realized that was quite good in hospitals. I thought, oh, you know, I kind of like the buzz. I like the fact that you're really trying to um, do something um, uh, sort of distinctive here, um, that there's an awful lot of scope for innovation, for development, um, that uh, there's no um, kind of established practice in such a way as perhaps in mental health that is you know, very big mechanism and hard to shift. There's more agility. Uh, so uh, I worked um, in chronic pain, a fantastic team in Devon. Um, uh, shout out to uh, pain management team at Torbay. Um, uh, and uh, anesthetists, physios really taught me an awful lot. And uh, um, after that, uh, a little bit of interlude of, uh, of holidaying after several years. And then... Uh, uh, back to London with um, clinical health psychology, worked on some chronic fatigue, um, regional teams, and then cancer. And I remember uh, my first uh, reaction to uh, the, you know, the job kind of came up. I was looking for for my next job, and um, this sort of job came up in cancer, Guy St. Thomas's, and um, the consultant in cancer at the time in Hillington, um, Frances Goodhart, uh, she's uh, you know, a colleague in the area, uh, just absolutely wise and, and generous and wonderful. Uh, and she said, oh, it's a good, it's a good place. I said, are you sure? Are you sure? You know, um, I, you know, <laughs> it sort of sounds a bit, you know, it sounds a bit tough. You know, I said, oh, it's sort of really wonderful. And people are, are kind and generous and sort of. Um, and, and indeed, that really was my experience at the time. Guys and Thomas was uh, and still is one of the leading teams in the UK in terms of psychology, had a sort of long history of development, really multidisciplinary team, 
um, and uh, over the years kind of learned the ropes there. And then uh, that led to getting my first consultant role here at Imperial in 2013. Uh, and I've been here since. And, you know, when you join Imperial, you get an expiry date. Every year you expire. So your card has got to be renewed. And I kind of relish that. It's a kind of a point in, in August when I first joined, you know. Um, and, and sometimes I forget. So I tap in and I, the, it doesn't let me in, right? Um, the doors don't open because I haven't um, uh, updated. Uh, so I go to the security desk and I kind of, you know, nod to the guy and the guy nods back. And, you know, there's this kind of moment of, of wary acceptance that kind of time is moving on and uh and uh you know but but my youthful picture on my badge still looks kindly upon me i, I it's wonderful uh so uh I, I it's the only thing i haven't lost uh, i've lost everything else uh, uh and uh so i hold on to that badge and my youthfulness and I've, i'll be uh here at imperials uh, for about 10 years next year so I've got six months to go. And, uh, you know, how many years does that make to 70? I don't know. Uh, but uh, there's a countdown there as well. So uh, is that the long story? Gosh, that is the long story. No, it's great. It's very interesting to see how you've got to where you are. Because I think when people come from different specialties into cancer, they don't necessarily go into it straight into cancer. What, like, I don't know, you said you went into the cancer side. People told you it'd be tough. What made you stay? Um, what was... Um, really, really good was that um, there was a uh, sort of very person-centered, very compassionate sort of dynamic in cancer care um, that uh, welcomed uh, psychological care. So although, of course, you know, it's not easy to introduce that and sustain psychological care in big medical systems that have to work you know, in order to treat cancer efficiently, right? It's a big machine, right? And people quite rightly say, um, you know, sometimes I feel like they just need my body. Uh, and, you know, if I could just sort of stay back at reception and hand over the body and then they'll return it to me when they're done, um, right? So sort of sometimes that is, you know, kind of inevitable in, in sort of big or, you know, big complex systems like that. I think fundamentally all clinicians in cancer get it, um, that kind of how people are affected by cancer and how that in turn, what that in turn means for their um, outcomes, their experience, their quality of life, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're passionate about uh, caring for people through cancer, you can't but engage with the psychological aspects of it and perhaps in other specialties you can kind of leave that aside you know not really arguably you can't but it, maybe it's a little bit easier to ignore or put aside or make it somebody else's business right but here even you know from anybody from you know a surgeon to uh, you know a hematologist to uh, you know anything right um it's it's there like you're gonna some of your work will be psychological right some of your work will be working around the, the sort of shock and uh, distress and, and change uh, that this is engendering on your patient. So everybody's really interested uh, and compassionate. And I think the whole system is geared towards that in a way that's so much better than uh, other medical specialties, right? So um, 
I have this um, um, I have this slide when I teach clinical psychologists um, that says um, uh, spending um, you know per capita or something like that in charities right in the U.S. and it says it shows how how hugely more charity uh, money goes towards uh, cancer charities than other types of charities right. Um, and it's it's a kind of you know put your money where your mouth is usually as a society is what happens right um, you know for for better or for worse that's kind of what captures the imagination for people so there are drivers such as uh, you know Macmillan and other organisations that put a huge amount of effort into uh, psychological care holistic care patient experience patient centredness in the broadest way um, that just don't don't exist in other specialties. So, you know, really seeing firsthand that there is such a kind of positive dynamic um, was very attractive. Um, and the other one was um, uh, having a, a beautiful demonstration of how a multidisciplinary team um, can work very well. Um, we had uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, psychotherapists, uh, complementary therapists, um and uh, uh not not a particularly efficient system uh, but uh you know because of the time it was still you know a little bit kind of you know make do and go along but uh you know sort of wonderfully thoughtful people and kind people with you know all sorts of interesting ideas that were just not rigid and you know defined to diagnoses and you know packages of, of sort of treatment it can be very deadening, very, very sort of dull, right? Um, you know, I've probably mentioned the word, uh, you know, flexibility and innovation sort of several times, and it's kind of that's really attractive. Um, so, uh, so yeah, those were kind of a couple of those things. Um, and, uh, you know, you won't believe it, right? But um, for a while, there were days where I had nothing to do. Um, so I would, uh, we had a sort of system of, uh, you know, trying to be, you know, sort of responsive to things that happened on the wards. So responsiveness is kind of critical in cancer, right? Things happen today and sort of three weeks later is is too far. But for a mental health service, that's kind of, hello. Um, you just start to, you know, you, you just even, you, you haven't even got through the door in, in a month, Right. But as cancer psychology, we wanted to be responsive, particularly to words and inpatients. So we had a bleep. Um, so uh, there I was sitting, uh, having a sipping a coffee in Borough Market, waiting for the bleep. Um, that was my day, I was holding the bleep. I had other things to do, but, uh, you know, I could sort of actually sit and have a coffee. And those were the days. Uh, um, now, I, you know, when we were trying to get a coffee with Naman, I was kind of just sort of driving fast up the road. I know. I was I was worried because I've never left the hospital with a jacket without a jacket on. It was a really sunny day. I was in my tunic. And you were like, I'm wearing uniform too. I was like, yeah, but Alex, you're wearing a shirt. You can get away with it. <laughs> oh, God. Getting out is uh, is is curious, isn't it? And um, uh, yeah, I think that it. It, it makes me think of the other dynamic that's really, really attractive in a hospital. It's that, um, in principle, you are steps away from other people you work with. So there's a real sort of dynamic of connection. Now, equally, it can be months in between you can actually find the time to, to go to do those two steps. Uh, but at the same time, uh, yeah, there's a certain 
collective effort that happens in hospitals, a sense of mission and um, and uh, and dynamic that's uh, you know kind of harder to to feel uh, in, in 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 some other settings. You mentioned um, so psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor. What are the differences between them? Right. Um, that is a pretty decent question. Um, now, uh, before I ask that, now, sort of tell me, have you ever um, been trying to convince a patient, right, uh, because you've you've noticed something, some sense of complexity or, or distress in them, right, that perhaps they're not so, you know, upfront or, or kind of clear-headed about. So they might be sort of displaying that or showing that in a way that you've picked up uh, and and you're trying to you you sense that they might be a bit ambivalent about psychological care, uh, and you're trying to convince them. Now, would you say uh, I'm going to refer them? I'm going to refer you to the psychologists, or would you say I'm going to refer you to the counsellors? I'll definitely go counsellor. I think. <laughs> what, uh, why is that? I personally think it's because I've had counselling, and it doesn't sound. So um, scary. I don't know. I have uh, I have this perception yes. of films that have psychiatrists that are going to put me into a mental health institution. That's literally what comes into head when you say psychiatry. Well, and, and I think kind of psychology gets a little bit of that kind of white lab coat and kind of um, uh, sort of um, sit behind a very cold desk and be shown strange images Right, the Rorschach test. It's kind of uh, you know uh, quite a um, uh, quite a thing. So uh, that was what I was hoping. We haven't practiced this, but that was kind of what I was hoping I would hear because that is what I sense is that there is something about the word counselling that uh, is comforting to people, that feels warm and safe and sort of accepting, and that perhaps there is something about the words sort of psychology or psychiatry that feels a bit. Um, you know, being dissected, uh, and and sort of almost sort of, uh, yeah, uh, sort of compelled. You know, there, there's something about these things in a kind of cultural milieu, right, that we've all absorbed. Uh, kind of, hopefully, that's not actually the case. Um, so uh, the, I suppose that the distinction um, kind of comes in um, in terms of the training pathways right now you know put a psychologist and a counselor in a cancer service working with patients and and other professionals for a decade and they'll probably end up being kind of quite similar right um if they're if they have the same goals and objectives if that's their role so given enough time everybody will sort of probably sort of share uh, some practices uh, unless their role is is different and, and that sometimes is the case but where you begin with is different, right? So psychologists have said is an initial degree, and then there's a very, um, uh, uh, very demanding selection for the doctoral clinical training program. Um, it's sort of NHS funded, therefore very competitive. Um, yeah, so that's about 10 to 20 percent um, of people who apply to doctoral training. Um, and um, uh, you uh, you come out for after sort of three years, you've done a doctoral research, doctoral level research, um, and you've done 
sort of training and expertise in various multiple models, including psychometrics, cognitive testing, mental health services, and you know, learning disability and children's services. So you're pretty multimodal. Uh, and also you are probably more trained in the um, process of uh, analytical formulation uh, of looking at a very, very wide range of factors from multiple models and integrating them when it comes to working with an individual. As a clinical psychologist, that's the idea uh, that you draw from multiple models and methods and you personalize your care and you approach it as a sort of um, uh, kind of iterative process where you work with people to test out different things with them. Um, now, for counseling, um, the, uh, the, the the kind of the requirement is, first of all, it's sort of not a, uh, I suppose I should say that as a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, um, you end up being HCPC registered, like therapeutic radiographers. Um, Whereas with counseling, it's not regulated in that sense. So uh, the there's a variety of uh, sort of training courses in counseling. Some are pretty brief, right? Some are pretty long uh, and, um, and in-depth and elaborate. Uh, and it's similar for psychotherapy. Um, so counseling and psychotherapy uh, can have a variety of, um, of depths of training. And as I said, you know, you, their entry point usually is uh, kind of much more flexible because people go into these training programs. Now, the, their advantage can be that people enter these with a lot of life experience often, a lot of maturity and life experience. Um, uh, so they might have been, um, you know, different healthcare professional or, you know, sort of something else in, in, in their first uh, bit of their career. Um, but at the point of kind of completing their uh uh, sort of training, they usually will have much less depth of experience, much less depth of um, kind of expertise. Uh, but also they'll have a distinctive focus on a particular model or an individual or a kind of uh, way of working, right? So usually the ethos is, is more about the therapeutic uh, in the interpersonal or sort of psychotherapeutic technique and how to apply that than kind of looking broadly as psychologists would do at all sorts of factors, including the system and what other people do and um, how um, uh, you know, the biomedical factors influence the environmental factors and, uh, and the local cultures. And, you know, so the sort of systemic, we call them sort of factors. Uh, so that said, you know, they come out of the box perhaps a little bit different. But as I said, you know, they, they will converge inevitably because you learn from your patients and you learn from experience. So, you know, when I joined guys, the counselors uh, working there were hugely experienced uh, and I learned an awful lot from them. And although my role was a bit different, I had to respond and, you know, address different kinds of situations and problems. Um, because that was kind of perhaps what what um, psychologists are generally more adept at. Uh, equally, there were definitely things where if it was me, I'd really want to be with uh, with Shelley and Jean. Um, so uh, it's a long sort of thing, but uh, fundamentally, I think you know, there one of the kind of key points I hope people take away is that it's really really important to welcome all sorts of ideas and techniques. Um, and approaches and mindsets into sort of psychological care, um, because 
we we know that you know it, it will different things will will appeal and click and help different people and in cancer that's absolutely the case it's not a case of trying different therapies but also personal style and kind of warmth and compassion are paramount so your best bet is to have a multidisciplinary team uh, your best bet is to have people who think a bit differently who might tune in and respond to different types of people on the other side um, and that you know might have sort of you know different interests and priorities right so you don't get too bogged down as you might do with a uniprofessional team that starts to kind of think in the same way and perhaps can be can become a little bit sort of um, insular gosh it's no it's really really interesting discussion i know when i was in clinical i identified that my skills at communicating with patients could be developed and I actually did a counselling course and back then psychological support for patients was non-existent it was really people were a bit like why are you doing this um but I really felt that you know I didn't have we didn't have radiographer review clinics we didn't have ACPs then and I was using some of those counselling skills every day within that 10 minute treatment time to try and help support patients and obviously thankfully now it's definitely moved on but I do think it's so important to have that integration of skill and knowledge for every single profession um, because I really do see the impact on patients when you're able to offer advice and support in that in that psychological um, way and that brings me on nicely to where pre-rehabilitation and rehabilitation are now you know we're we're trying to get that integrated way of working where does where does this fit in Alex where do we need to ensure that we have integrated pathways of psychological support because in my experience we're getting better we're still not there with uh, nutrition and exercise but psychological support seems to be a pillar that is missing throughout that pathway um really really good topic and actually sort of goes to the nub of a lot of the things that we think about sort of psychological care so first of all just to say joe that's fantastic um that's fantastic and uh, you know in in it, it used to be indeed the case that um um, the old styles of is is that okay to say you know old style CNSs you know um, I'm you old know, so it's fine <laughs> you know we're, we're we're kind of indeed in that kind of mold where effectively they were uh, as much kind of psychological therapists as kind of the clinician the more kind of clinical practical kind of guidance and key working kind of roles that they might be to the today and indeed an awful lot. Um, did did exactly that, did a kind of an additional counselling course or kind of qualification and sort of brought that into practice. And from that sort of, you know, indeed sprang the idea and developed the idea that psychological care is a part of everybody's clinical role to a certain degree. So there's sort of different levels of scope. So uh, therapeutic radiographers, as much as clinical nurse specialists, can have for a period a key working role and therefore need to have what we would call in the pathways of level two so enhanced psychological skills so the ability to to not just to respond in the moment to distress which is critical which is um, the ability to communicate compassionately really listen to people actively 
uh, understand what's important to them. And that's kind of the, the core, core psychological practices that should be happening everywhere. That would be level one, the kind of universal uh, care. So whether that's the breaking bad news, whether that's the kind of booking people into a clinic or uh, guiding them through a procedure, um, you know, compassionate, kind, actively listening, tuning in, um, uh, and sort of, um, you know, open questions and all sorts of skills like that. Now, but the next level up really for professionals in this kind of role, as we are saying, is the ability to go beyond that and actually ask some carefully thoughtful questions, right? They're trying to perhaps, you know, first of all, help us understand where a patient's at a bit better than what they're just sort of perhaps showing or, you know, whatever's coming up, right? There's going to be more stuff that's going to be going on. Particularly if um, distress is coming out as things like, uh, you know, poor adherence or, you know, ambivalence about things or, you know, relational conflicts. Yeah. So if there's tensions and you know, difficulties. So those skills in terms of trying to understand where the person's coming from, what else is going on, are a clinical skill. So people need the guidance, the training to do that. We do that level two training. That's a kind of UK wide. That's part of the NICE guidance. Uh, for clinical nurse specialists and, and other AHPs and uh, um, developing those skills to explore and then to give that first line guidance that, that might well be um, helping people reconnect with their strengths. Yeah, that's kind of a hugely useful tool, isn't it, right? You, that you don't, you're not giving people something, you're just helping them find what they've already got. Yeah. Uh, and, and usually after you've done a good bit of, you know, really good quality listening and really help people bring that out, um, they'll be able to reconnect with their own uh, strengths, perhaps resilience, capacity, much better. So kind of finding those strengths after, uh, after a compassionate conversation or occasionally actually introducing new ideas, right? Uh, but as I usually try and sort of say, you know, that's a, it's a tough time to be learning new tricks. Uh, when you're um, in the midst of a you know, really distressing experience and kind of cancer, uh, perhaps when you're feeling, um, you know, your self-efficacy is low, uh, because this is all new and like, how do you know how to do these things, right? This is very, very new. And that kind of takes us to prehab, where effectively, although sort of, psycho you know, very complex psychological distress can inhibit people from engaging in prehab, right? Um, you know, it's not that you can sort of, uh, in the period you have six, eight weeks, whatever, do a sort of a, a, a pure psychological intervention. It's it's very, very few people need that. Very, very few people can actually engage with that. So what you want is your whole program of prehab to be psychologically minded. Um, so you want the communications to uh, be reminding people of, you know, their what they can do, right? So rather than saying, okay, are you anxious? We'll do this program for anxiety. Yeah. And that's kind of taking prehab and sort of putting the pieces, breaking up the pieces, you know, breaking up the, the, the human being and taking their anxiety somewhere else and coping with that. It would be about uh, perhaps if they're working with a physio and a dietitian, how can they be astutely um, encouraging people to uh, build up their self-efficacy and their self-soothing, right? So the first, again, the first layer is... Um, hopefully skillful people like Joe engaging with sort of prehab, bringing in their, that guidance, but with a psychological mindedness, right? Of course, so 
I, that would be my answer, really, to, you know, putting psychological care into prehab, it would mean uh, developing the skills of the staff and also developing the, the process. So it builds up those kind of psychological resilience factors for everybody, right? Rather than taking people out and plugging them into psychological intervention. When that's been tried, most people decline or take very little away from it uh, because it's not targeted. It's not personalized, right? Uh, it's kind of like, let's, uh, you know, people are anxious. So let's give everybody anxiety management techniques. Now, that doesn't work if you're not actually willing or ready or actually in that place. And it's far better to be encouraging what you're already doing. That's soothing and self-regulating and, um, you know, helps you, you know, settle your mind. So, um Rather than kind of the same thing for everybody, which can be a little bit of a kind of a you know research mentality, that's why it's really hard to to research personalized prehab, uh, isn't it? It's like well, the ethics kind of said, well, not everybody's getting the same thing. How do you compare? And that's kind of where you're going to go. Oh, we need to be a bit more pragmatic than this. Um, but at the same time, also we will need to look out for people who really, really have complex issues, right? So prehab is a might be the bit where you first start to identify quite how complex a person's world is psychosocially, you know, uh, and then you might need to involve specialist care uh, because actually they're coming into this um, and uh, yeah, the, the problems are wider and more complicated. Now that said, um, when people do manage with the, the kind of care and support to engage in, you know, something a bit self-caring, like physio and sort of diet and so on, inevitably that has psychological impact, right? It's self-regulating, it's collaborative, people feeling like they're doing, taking control, doing something good for themselves. So it's no surprise that very functional interventions are very psychologically beneficial, right? So that's the other thing. So let's make those, let's supercharge those with sort of psychologically minded skills that are built in, that are a little bit invisible, uh, but can be very successful. So yeah, uh, you're, it's exactly the right thing to be doing, Joe. Uh, that's where we should be really looking at things is, is kind of putting that psychological care into processes rather than taking people out of those processes and sort of sending them somewhere else. I think with it, it's it's fascinating to hear the clinical side kind of merging with the psychological side. I think lots of patients don't understand that probably eight times out of 10, they're already doing the right things, but it's about reassurance. Oh, yeah. It's reminding them that, yes, cancer is a scary experience, but it is, as you said, individualized. And it's um, going to use some of my psychology knowledge. I did a level two diploma as well. But again, same as you, Joe, just in my Perfect. own time, I wasn't encouraged to do it. But now I'm in review, the advanced mm. communication it's so useful, even just with colleagues, it's useful, but the Cartman triangle, so obviously victim, persecutor, and I forgot the other one now, but there's like an adult one as well. There's, <laughs> there's the winner's triangle to go on one step further from that, but every patient bounces around in different parts of that. So they'll come into treatment, feeling uh -huh, the victim, uh -huh. they're grieving who they used to be before cancer, they're grieving that they've got cancer, mm -hmm. they're grieving that they're having treatment, but that's the start, isn't it? And then slowly they'll build up to be ac accepting towards the end. And then you often see patients go on social media now or post-treatment come back to support groups when they've been through that journey to help other people. And that's kind of going into the winner's triangle, so the second element of it. That's my perception of it. But it really is fascinating. Oh, wow, nice. I think that's how I try and explain it to patients who come in. They're not very 
you know, no one's happy to be having treatment. You can't prepare for it as much as we have models and things to get them there. It's you can't. You're going through cancer treatment. You can't. But at the end of it, it is nice to see that some people can really find their own resilience that they've always had the whole time. Wonderful, and and that's absolutely you know uh, the same way we we think about um, adaptation as a sort of iterative process, a, a kind of a process of adaptation as opposed to having problems with anxiety or depression that's usually it is possible that you know you're you're in such a place that it, it could properly be characterized as a kind of clinically significant mental health problem right um, but usually that's kind of not a very effective way of characterizing how people thinking and feeling in cancer uh, and a process of adjustment like you're saying you know perhaps kind of starting from a position of sort of fear and threat and vulnerability and then kind of gradually learning what you can do uh, and then kind of gradually getting um, uh, the ability to readapt your identity uh, and bring cancer into some way, you know, accept what has to be accepted, fight back where you can, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the kind of reclaiming your, you know, readjusting your identity um, as you go through, as you're learning uh, and that inevitably there'll be periods of distress during that, right? Um, so distress per se is not the problem. Um, it's the ability to keep learning and developing, uh, and, and sort of having enough, um, enough tools and support around you, enough of the sort of resources that you need to feel safe to do that learning and developing, right? Because if you're feeling very, um, you know, very unsafe and unsupported, you'll probably feel quite sort of frozen, right? Can I ask Alex, um, Obviously, probably no one will see this quite a bit within his radiographer review role, but when you have a patient, how can you differentiate someone who is distressed because they're going through cancer treatment and they may be having side effects that's impacting them psychologically versus someone who actually needs more specialised psychological support because I think that's something that we find as therapeutic radiographers mm. really difficult to differentiate. You know, at what point do you refer to specialist mm. services? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. Uh, and I very much appreciate that, you know, people will be working in a very constrained environment at the time that they're trying to kind of pick up on that, right? They will see somebody in distress um, that distress will sort of come out. It's not necessarily going to be sitting down people and saying, you know, well, let's really think about how you're doing at the poem. It just probably just blurts out or comes out or shows itself in some way, right? Um, so first of all, I yeah, I really, really sort of recognize that this is a hard task. It's not easy. Um, um, thankfully, it's not just uh, down to you. Uh, so it's uh, it's kind of about people uh, kind of making their uh, you know making their sort of choices and preferences kind of known right. So um, even simple things like kind of distress thermometers are a good start, right? So um, the holistic needs assessment, um, you know, it's a good question if people are sort of distressed, and kind of say you know what what. So let's just um, if you do have a moment and you may not do right, but um, you know, you may have to say to people, look, you know, this is really, really important, but I just can't do it justice right now. You know, this isn't the right setting. Um, 
but I really want us to look at that. So let's sort of schedule to do that, you know, within your scope of your role, maybe you have a little bit of autonomy in that to do so. And that would be great. I think that's the appropriate thing to do because if you're feeling under pressure, uh, you won't be able to really be attentive and, and, you know, you won't come across as really wanting to hear. You'll come across as kind of wanting to get on with it, uh, which is a reality for you. And that's true. And it's not a bad thing. Um, so, but just being upfront, saying to people, I really get that there is something here that's important, but we won't do it justice. Now, when you can do, it's not a bad idea to start with a distress thermometer or something like that. Um, you know, okay, let's just have a look, right? Where would you, you know, where would you feel you'd be? And then you kind of open that up a bit, you know, and, and tell me about this stuff, right? So, you know, the first step would be, yeah, just really getting people to kind of unfold that as much as possible. Um, and and if that's kind of uh, you know as much sort of skill or you know expertise as you've got, that's fantastic. You've done great, uh, and your follow up to patients is. And what do you think will help you now? Do you have any ideas of what would help you now? So uh, I really one of the kind of big missions is to kind of uh, I suppose move shift from a kind of the clinician has to identify and solve the problem to it has to be a collaborative discussion with the patient. Uh, and that's kind of appropriate in psychological care. Now, you wouldn't do that in medical care. And of course, the more, you know, sort of technical people are, you said, well, you know, what do you think we should do with this, uh, you know, uh, nodule in your lungs? Uh, so, you know, you, you wouldn't say that, right? Um, but in, in psychological care, that's kind of critical. So, you know, what are the sort of things that would be a meaningful help for you, right? It, that's crucial. We'll have to be personalized, have to be patient-centered. Uh, and people might say, I don't know, what do you think? And you say, well, let's just, uh, I'm, I have some ideas, but let me just sort of work it out for you. So have you heard about places like, you know, the Maggie's where there's sort of perhaps peer groups or things like that? And people say, oh, no, 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 that's not for me. Or they say, oh, yeah, I went and that's kind of beautiful. So, oh, beautiful. So well, tell me more about that. What did you feel you were drawn to? Uh, oh, yeah, I really like sort of chatting to people. Sort of, oh, you could kind of, you join the groups, fantastic. You know, do you think that will be a good way for you to sort of process all this? You know, and then, oh, yeah, with something, well, I think I need more tools. Or something. Oh, okay, you know, more tools. Where, 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 would you, where would you go for that? So, um, you know, as you see, I'm sort of trying to get into a sort of, not a position of telling people what to do, but of trying to kind of find what works together, yeah? Um, and of course, you know, I would come at this conversation with a lot of ideas, right? And, and I don't expect everybody to have all these ideas. That would be sort of daft. But the, the fundamental idea would be, you know, you don't have to find the right solution. You have to kind of keep the conversation about, you know, what's the right help for you? And people might say it's practical help. It's, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be much less worried if I could sort of sort out the housing so you kind of go right okay and what else you know and how about how you're feeling right how about how you're kind of coping with this um you know and um, uh, i think that the very very last thing should be would you ever consider um that perhaps uh, you know having uh, a consultation a discussion uh with the counselors as we said uh, you know, less um, less evoking. You know, the, I, I don't mind. I don't mind. People often, you know, um, 
uh, you know, even people who know fully well that I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, you know, say, um, you know, they introduce the, the, their patient to the counselor. And that's absolutely fine. I take that as a compliment uh, because they're wise and wonderful. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, again, putting that out, but as a very last step, right? And saying, you know, and do you think that you'd, you, you might get something from having a discussion, right? Do you think you might be interested in hearing what might come out of that? Yeah, would you be open to having a discussion, right? So if you're feeling any sense of ambivalence, there's lots of people that have no ambivalence. They're going to be, yeah, thank you very much, right? You will sense that. You will know that they're kind of open and ready. But if you're noticing ambivalence, leave it very sort of gently and then go with, and uh, yeah, and, and would that be something you'd be willing to explore? And if people are ambivalent, you could say, well, you know, we, you know, we're we're having a psychological conversation now, and um, it's not that much different. But you just could have a bit more time. And how about you go and figure out what that's like, and then come back and tell me, yeah, because maybe you're right. Maybe they are terrible. At which people probably people will laugh a little bit, and they'll kind of react a little bit, and they'll kind of go, oh, you know, maybe I'll do that, you know. So you've done your best at that point to, you know, guide people to find the right thing for them. And also, if they're ambivalent, to very gently, yeah, um, get them to do the first step. And it, it, they might be absolutely right that it might not be the right way of approaching, psych, you know, psychological well-being, right? There's other ways, right? Um, and we want to respect that. How do you, I don't know, maybe in your experience, how have you find supporting partners or family? So, you know, there are people who have young children, for example, mm. or, you know, their partners are really not coping with oh, yeah. their diagnosis. But obviously, they have to power through the treatment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in principle, all services would be um, available to carers on a similar basis. Uh, and that's generally the kind of criteria for uh, psychological care pathways. Certainly, that's the intention in, in pathways that cares are included. Um, however, the, the the things are things are considerably harder to implement, right? Because if you really care for somebody, and that's why you're being affected, also you probably are taking a position of protectiveness. Uh, so uh, you're doing the um, you know the parking, the sort of shuffling things around, the looking after the kids, the kind of keeping the job going, etc. You're taking a protective role, and that's very important for you. So it's not going to be easy to say, you know what. Um, out of all these pressing tasks, uh, the one I will do is taking time for myself to do these other things, right? Uh, so it's often, understandably, even if people are aware and perhaps kind of, you know, would be welcoming that, um, it would conflict with another big priority of theirs, right? So um, again, there are ways that, uh, you know, lots of ways that cares already, you know, nourish and sort of sustain themselves, right? Uh, you know, other people, families, etc. cetera. Uh, but when it comes to really considerable difficulties that might need clinical input, you know, I, I think it does clash with their primary role and function. So it's very difficult. Um, and um, sometimes people also have this idea that if they were to, uh, uh, you know, to take up a service, they're inevitably kind of taking something away or clashing with a patient's care, right? Um, so one, uh, you know, one of the most effective ways is to bring people together, um, you know, bring them bring them in together and sort of say, well, let's have a conversation about how you're both doing, because 
if you're dealing with X, you're probably dealing with this together. Everybody has a sort of different position in that. Um, but, uh, you know, let's uh, let's have that discussion. And when we do that, it it kind of, you know, there's uh, usually a mutual discussion and then also it can pop out in different directions. And people then say, actually, there are some stuff that's in my mind that I need to, um, you know, work through uh, and I need to do that sort of separately. Right. So um, I think that kind of if people are really struggling to uh, access care because of this idea that, uh, you know, they're not you know, it's not quite their priority. One way of engaging them is to say, would you come along as a couple? Would you come along to support your partner? Would you come as part of the team that is trying to tackle this? And usually they would go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And it is really challenging, isn't it? I think when anyone goes through a cancer diagnosis, it it does affect that relationship. You know, if you have a cancer that affects intimacy, sexual relationships, it's it's hugely important of to kind of consider the psychological impact on the on the whole partnership rather than obviously maybe just the individual cancer patient. So Alex, um where do we refer patients if there is no psychological service available? I I recognise that um, you know, some of the referral wait times are in excess of a year for some patients in some areas of the country. So what what would you suggest healthcare professionals or people um, working in primary services um, to do for cancer patients if they are noticing that they do need referral for specialist help and support? So uh, if, you, if you were for a moment to kind of step outside that and kind of put it on a basis for physical healthcare, you'd say, well, you've got bowel obstruction. Um, uh, so, but we haven't really got a, you know, haven't really got any places where, where shall we sort of refer? Like you wouldn't, that would not be acceptable for significant physical clinical, uh, symptoms. Right. Uh, and yet somehow, right. It's kind of, it is very acceptable for there to be, you know, no access for sort of mental health and psychological care. Right. Um, or that it's sort of, uh, yeah, at such a kind of remove that it's effectively, you know, inaccessible. So it's it's kind of, if you put it in those terms, it's absolutely daft, right? You, you, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't accept that, right? You wouldn't say, well, you kind of need an endoscopy uh, uh, to, you know, uh, to sort of look at this uh, carefully and, and so on. But um, we haven't got one. So I'll just sort of signpost you to some places that sort of do whatever they think is right in some sort of, um, you know, organization that is not part of any clinical guidance is, you know, I'll just signpost you to some places. So uh, I'm, I think that's kind of, that really should be the, the kind of the starting point that, you know, in a way professionals should not really have any, uh, any, um, any hesitation in actually sort of challenging that uh, because obviously they want to care for their patients. So they're looking for solutions for their patient, but that also kind of means that perhaps the kind of the necessary activism that should be happening isn't happening because it's kind of seen as well, you know, with mental health care, psychological care, well, I don't know, we haven't got anything. So maybe we'll do an app, right? Maybe we'll give a leaflet. Like you wouldn't accept that if it was physical mental, physical care, right? You just wouldn't accept that. You'd, you'd be writing letters to your, you know, your chief exec. You'd be, you know, putting that on datix, right? So uh, the first thing is, I'd, I'd encourage you to not accept that. Um, 
as a system, right? As a system that's sort of really not uh, not doing this properly. There are there are guidelines, there are sort of standards, uh, and and if those standards are not being met, uh, that is a problem for the system, right? Um, now, of course, in that moment with a patient, it's a problem for the person, right? So probably what I would sort of say is that it's okay to be you know very transparent to people. Right, that there isn't, you know, what should be happening now, right? So I think that's important that people are aware, right? Uh, otherwise, they're they're kind of, you know, getting the sense that distress or you know mental health care is not important, right? So it's important to say the right thing to do now would have been X, but I know that that X isn't here, right? So we've got, you know, a couple of options here, right? Um, and if you've got a third sector um, kind of organization, that can be an option, but it's not a clinical referral pathway. It's signposting and people can take themselves there and not take themselves there. And you also have no control over the kind of quality. Now, we are absolutely, you know, confident and, you know, uh, sort of assured about the kind of quality of care in place like a Maggie Center. It, I, I need to emphasize that, you know, there is absolutely you know, we have absolute trust in in you know our colleagues in third sector organizations like Maggie's to to you know deliver psychological care with integrity and innovation and you know sort of fully you know within uh, parameters. Uh, but it's not a given, right? It's it's you know once you're sort of signposting people, inevitably they're not within a system of kind of uh, you know clinical governance, right? Um, so I think that has to be clear to people, right? That's it's only fair to sort of say. These are independent organizations. Uh, they have a absolutely wonderful track record, but you've got to judge for yourself. Yeah. Um, and what I would also sort of suggest is if you're already in your mind forming the idea that this person needs kind of clinically quite personalized, quite careful, and you know, uh, picking up, picking out the difficulties, I would probably say the time for things like handouts and resources and books and apps has gone. Yeah. So you're not in the territory where those things could be interesting. Those things could be interesting where you're perhaps you're in the territory of people starting their journey with a, 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 you know, a degree of self-efficacy and kind of resourcefulness. And they're like, well, how do I improve my coping or I suppose underpin my coping with some uh, things that what, what things can I read or do that might reinforce what I'm already doing and thinking quite well, right? So they might have a role in that kind of universal level of care uh, for the appropriate people. But once you're in the level of, I'm really worried about this person, I would say you're probably doing quite appropriately if there isn't a service to not bring in things like, here's the leaflet, here's an app, why don't you try this? Because you know, that doesn't sound good to people. Like, you you know, we might be doing it out of a sense of care or just like really trying to be caring and pull out all the stops, right? Um, but I think that doesn't sort of sound, you know, that's not my experience where people do not find at that point that kind of um, a thing helpful. It sort of feels a bit invalidating. And I think it's best to be really, uh, you know, clear to people that the right thing to be doing here would be this. Unfortunately, we can't do that. Alex, I know we're coming towards the end of the podcast, but you mentioned about the protective role of carers and what they do for their family member, loved one, etc. Who protects and cares for you in this role? 
well, we are, we do have a, first of all, to say, a, a sort of a privileged position, to be honest, right? Um, uh, in order to provide psychological care, we have to provide that within a certain parameters, which means, you know, an hour, a patient who's present, um, you know, certain boundaries to that. Um, so already uh, that protects us uh, enormously in relation to other colleagues like kind of CNSs, therapeutic radiographers, doctors, right, who have to deal with a constantly shifting on sort of stable basis in which to have conversations, right? So, you know, uh, if you want to look after your psychologist, and that's a kind of shout out to anybody who's kind of in that position is make sure they've got a room, a uh, couple of chairs, box of tissues. Like you guys, you get to have all this kind of fancy saber stuff and all these kind of million dollar machines with buttons and flashing lights and kind of, you know, like we ain't we ain't asking for much. A room, a couple of chairs, a box of tissues and nobody barging in. So the first thing is, again, same as with all practitioners, right? What psychologists need is a kind of a safe space to be able to practice with integrity. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, in that sense, I would hope that happening for all doctors or nurses or, you know, is having enough staff on a ward is probably the best thing you could do for the well-being and and, and emotional care of your, your nursing colleagues. Right. Um, as opposed to saying to people, now you've got to stretch yourself double because we've got, you know, 20 percent vacancy. Right. Or today, three people haven't made it to their shift. Um, so good luck to you. I mean, you know, um, so uh, same stuff as, as everybody else, uh, the, 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 the context to feel that you can practice with integrity. Um, and the second thing is, is the opportunity to um, be involved in the co-design of things so that we can bring in psychological mindedness in the pathways from the beginning. So you know, it's a funny way of answering the kind of, you know, what, what looks, what helps you as a psychologist, what helps me psychologically is that sense of I'm doing the best I can. It's kind of fundamentally about being, um, you know, feeling that I'm, you know, it's not so much the kind of emotion in the moment. It's the sense that it's driving towards what I really believe is important. So that sense of, you know, progress and values is hugely. If I'm, if I'm working really hard, I'm really stressed, but it's in the good way that's okay, that'll pass, right? Um, so uh, context where you can practice with integrity and also um, involvement at a point where you can make a difference, right? And and so the contrary to that is involvement at a point where you cannot make a difference, when things have been set in stone and you then have the perhaps the kind of, you have to work against a whole host of things that you can see are not per particularly psychologically conducive, right? So when things are designed in certain ways and put you in a certain position, right? So the proverbial prehab where, you know, it hasn't happened to me, thankfully, but let's say, you know, some sort of process says, right, we're going to screen people and refer them if there's sort of distress over three or five. And then you're already in the system as a psychologist where you're kind of going, but that's not the right place to be. Why didn't we discuss this? Uh, I could do so much more for this pathway if I was working with you last year. Uh, so uh, sort of co-development and involvement really taking the sort of psychological perspective um, into account. And that's why we're 
I'm particularly sort of chuffed. And I think, you know, I've survived many, many bleak days because um, what we've been able to do in London and also is come, uh, coming out nationally is uh, a really thoughtfully worked through uh, pathway for cancer psychological care that sort of is designed with patients, with clinicians uh, to be uh, flexible to be uh, meeting different levels of needs at different times, that's kind of psychologically minded, that makes the most out of our limited psychological expertise, uh, that brings everybody um, to the top of their game, hopefully, whatever the role in cancer really speaks to, like, what's the most that you can that they can be doing. Uh, because I fundamentally also believe that, you know, people usually sign up to do these jobs because at some level they kind of have an affinity for people, right? It's not purely a technical thing. Uh, when we do uh, sort of Schwartz rounds with, um, you know, medical students sort of entering, it's full of kind of passion and value and like a hope for change, right? They're not signing up to say, I'm going to do some TTOs. I'm going to sign up. I'm going to sign off some forms even better. I'm going to do those. I'm going to smash those referrals. I'm going to do those discharge summaries. Like nobody says that that's the, mo the things that motivate them, right? In their profession. It's kind of, I want to really connect with people. I want to, you know, make a difference in individual lives. I want to feel like I'm healing, right? Um, those are terrific values. So um, I think people are intrinsically motivated by that. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that kind of helps me sleep um, in my old age is thinking, right, we've, we've been able to do something there that actually um, facilitates that for people all across the system, is that they actually have a role in something that's very integral to their values and their mission, right? Uh, as opposed to something very technical, which says, well, your only role is to give people a questionnaire and then refer them on, right? Something very administrative, technical, dehumanizing, um, and and kind of automatic, you know, it might be very efficient, right? But you know, it's not going to last for long. People aren't going to stand for it. Um, so, Alex, we're coming towards the end. What top tips would you give to any of our listeners? You've given some fantastic top tips throughout, but just to round it off. So, you know, obviously, you you will have uh, this uh, this kind of huge international audit, which is absolutely mind blowing to sort of uh, to think, and obviously uh their um their positions in the system will be so varied right so i think the first one would be uh that last point is that try and reconnect with what the value was that brought you here uh well i mean you know this podcast but also your role and your function why are you doing this kind of cancer care stuff why are you really doing that and if you reconnect with that value um and and actually sort of acknowledge that uh that's uh, already a wonderful thing that you're doing. So, so being authentic and kind of honest to that, um, I would sort of say the second be um, now because you're sort of driven by care and 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 that value, you might want to solve problems for people. But could I help you put that aside uh, and say you're you're not solely responsible for unraveling the kind of decades of difficulties that people have and bring to your door, right? Um, but uh, listening to that, witnessing that, kind of acknowledging that, um, and is is very is really really valuable and healing. Um, you know, just ask. Often people say, "But just asking questions, what do I do?" It's like questions are the intervention, right? Ask more questions. 
um, do more listening. No, I'm not doing anything. You're doing listening. So ask more questions, do more listening. Um, and uh, so thirdly, it would be uh, look out for the strengths that people bring uh, into this. Um, I'll give you a, you know I'll give you an interesting stat. Now they did a very big study in Glasgow. Um, Jane Walker and colleagues. It was published in the Lancet in 2014. Uh, they screened about 20,000, 21,000 people with cancer uh, in Glasgow. It's a huge amount, right? They sort of screened them with questionnaires. And everybody who uh, scored over the, the threshold in that questionnaire, about 26%, right, uh, scored over that threshold. Um, so then they, um, uh, they, they did the proper thing, which was sat down with people and did the a clinical interview, you know, uh, and Joe kind of harking back to our kind of whole visual about people in white coats with kind of checklists. I'm sure they kind of, you know, leaned into that and just, uh, yeah, kind of really went full, full, uh, <laughs> for the full effect. Uh, so they clinically interviewed people. Um, and what was, I'll kind of uh, make you guess here, what was the highest um, rate of uh, depression? Uh, diagnosis that they identified. So, uh, oh, and I should also tell you, at median, the median for that group of people they they interviewed was about one year post diagnosis. Right. So uh, these are already the people who have crossed above threshold. Yeah. Uh, for their kind of questionnaires for depression. Right. So their questionnaire says they're kind of in the clinical range, and then they sit down and they interview these people. And these people are about one year post-diagnosis. How many people um, are clinically depressed? I'm going to go 65%. 65, got Joe, Naman, higher or lower? Probably higher. Higher, yeah. Oh, I love you guys. You're the best foil because actually it was 13%. Wow, that's really surprising. It is, isn't it? Isn't it just? Um, and and, And that was in, guess what, lung, right? So, you know, what is what happens in lung at about one year, right? Yeah, that's kind of not far off from, you know, your your kind of average, right? In thing, you know, sort of time after after a sort of a lung cancer diagnosis, right? Um, of course it varies enormously and we, you know, but uh so 13% going down to kind of something about sort of six percent in sort of prostate, right? So the population level, so if you take like a group of people, right, that the kind of you'd find about 5% of them are kind of meet clinical criteria for depression at any one time, right? So uh, isn't that kind of amazing? Now, 13% is a significant amount of people and they are suffering and they are absolutely need appropriate care, right? But there's another 87%, right, who are distressed but it's not appropriate to describe their distress as depression. Yeah, it is appropriate to support them and care for them in all sorts of ways, right? Um, but we don't want to medicalize these things, right? So I suppose uh, absolutely, you know, let's really be kind of attentive to uh, those things. But you know, labels are not not the only way, right? To 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 sort of do that, and that's kind of a, a very long parenthesis. Right. To sort of bring us back to that tip about actually, um, you know, uh, yes, there will be people who need kind of clinical intervention, but the vast majority of people, 
it's really about sort of summoning their strengths, about kind of collaborating with them to find the right thing for them, yeah, rather than, you know, plugging them into a kind of clinical pathway. And I deliberately use that kind of terrible, you know, visual. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the third tip is, yeah, uh, don't feel compelled to have the solutions, kind of work with people. You, you're, you're probably doing the right thing um, uh, to follow what people feel is the right thing for them uh, because it's, it's, you know, it's a really good place to start. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for, for coming on and being so honest about everything. Um, Joe and I were texting each other saying that you, you know, can tell why patients like you, you have a very soothing, calming voice. It's just what we need. So thank you for everyone for listening to Rad Chat. So your hosts today have been Namanjil Kansin and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPT purposes, consider the reflective questions posted, along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPT certificate, please complete the Google form linked to the podcast. Uh, so our next next guest to feature will be Captain Ken Errington, and he will be discussing his experience of cancer and a career in the army. Um, thank you very much for listening and take care. <laughs>